I want to begin by thanking all of you deeply on behalf of our family for your love, your support, your prayers, your gifts, your texts, your emails. Uh, We're very aware that you are all helping while you're grieving. You're serving, you're pitching in, um, and we're, we're very grateful for that. And so we just say thank you uh, to all of you. We know that you've lost a pastor, and, and uh, we've lost a, a dad. Uh, uh, my wife's lost a husband, and, or my mom's lost a husband. My kids have lost a grandfather. So we're all walking through this, this loss together, and uh, I'm very thankful we don't walk alone. I'm very thankful that we have one another, and uh, we felt the love and the support and the prayers, and the rest of the family uh, looks forward to greeting you uh, this afternoon at the calling hours. It's interesting, we're, we're in this series on what is the gospel, and uh, on Monday of this week, I, I changed my topic. Um, and I changed my topic to simply uh, entitle it this, The Gospel and the Kingdom. And as Ralph just read, my dad's life verse, which I'll preach from tonight at the funeral, is Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this morning, if you'll help me, I want to talk to you about the gospel and the kingdom. And not only is it appropriate for this morning because it's the right word, but it's appropriate because I think in these words this morning, we're going to find the hope that we all need, that we're all searching for, uh, and that actually is searching for us. And we're thankful for that. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, he actually talked about the gospel a lot different than we talk about it now. Now when we talk about the gospel, we often talk about personal salvation, giving your heart to Jesus, going to heaven someday. Jesus really didn't talk a lot about any of that. In fact, when Jesus came to earth, he primarily came talking about the kingdom. I want to read you this verse in Luke 4, verse 43. They asked him to stay and to and to preach longer, and this was, or stay and do longer ministry. And he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Jesus was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And you know, for my dad, his life was about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus returns to Galilee. And let's just read this, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. I just want to read this to you, and then I just want to make three observations, and we're going to sing some more. It says, beginning in verse 14, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Jesus, the God-man, needed the Holy Spirit. How much more do you and I need the Holy Spirit? That's the main thing I've been praying for my family and for my mom these last few days is that the precious Holy Spirit will be near and that we will not feel abandoned or alone, but that we will have a profound, uh, a profound sense of the Holy Spirit's nearness, his actual indwelling. Jesus comes back to Galilee. He's full of the Holy Spirit's power and reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in the synagogue and he was praised by everyone. But when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scripture. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The gospel and the kingdom. I want to I share with you three uh, characteristics of the kingdom of God this morning. Three characteristics that we see in this text. And the first characteristic is simply this. It's the great reversal. Jesus said he came for the poor to bring good news to the poor. Jesus said that he came to the captives, to those who were imprisoned. He doesn't say the wrongly imprisoned. He says the imprisoned. Those that society have rejected and and quit on and, and, and judged and categorized. He's come for the oppressed, those who are bound, of course, spiritually, but the context that he's quoting from in Isaiah is not just spiritual bondage, but actual, uh, actual bondage, that they were living under the bondage and under the control of other rulers and other nations. And Jesus came for the poor and the oppressed, which should make us pause and go, who comes for them? Who comes for them? Who, 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 who goes out of their way for the poor and the oppressed? Well, Jesus did. Because his kingdom is the great reversal. Some people call it the upside-down kingdom. You know, the kingdoms of this world are built on certain things, right? We know them well. But Jesus' kingdom is, in every way, the exact opposite. When Jesus came proclaiming and preaching the kingdom, he was saying, I'm flipping the script. I'm flipping everything. It's all changing. The very things that the kingdoms of this world are built on, you're going to see that my kingdom is built on something very, very different. Well, what are earthly kingdoms built on? I found this list that I want to share with you. This is a list of things where we would say, I know that my earthly kingdom is strong, is solid. I know that my earthly kingdom is strong if... I want to finish that for you and then tell you what kind of kingdom is being built. And these are the kingdoms that the world builds. So I know that my earthly kingdom is strong if I have power and influence over other people. That's a power kingdom. That's not God's kingdom. I know that my earthly kingdom is strong if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. That's an approval kingdom. That's not God's kingdom. I know that I, my earthly kingdom is strong if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life That's the comfort kingdom. If I'm able to get mastery over my life in this area, that's the control kingdom. If other people are dependent on me and need me, that's the helping kingdom. If someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, that's the dependence kingdom. If I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone, that's the independence kingdom. And on and on, there's the work kingdom, the achievement kingdom, the materialism kingdom. How about this one? If I'm keeping all the rules that my religion sets out for me, that's the religious kingdom. The, the irreligious kingdom, if I feel completely independent of all organized religion and I'm living by my own rules. Here's another one. My race and my culture is recognized as superior to everyone else's. That's a race, racial, cultural kingdom. It's not God's kingdom. If a particular social group or professional group lets me in, that's the inner ring kingdom. You, you see what I'm saying? If, if, if I have a particular look or body, that, that's the image kingdom. 
doesn't take much looking around to realize that the kingdoms of this world are built on these things. And Jesus comes and absolutely reverses it. Jesus' kingdom is a total reversal of value. So where do we see that? The first place that I think we see it is in the Beatitudes. And I'm not going to read them to you, but in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we, we have the longest discourse by Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mounts. And it begins with the Beatitudes. Let me, let me give you a glimpse into the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, the kingdom that he came to establish, the kingdom that we're a part of. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who, poor and, who are poor and realize their need for him. Whereas the kingdoms of this world say, no, you shouldn't need anything from anybody. Don't depend on others. Don't, don't recognize your own need. Put your, show your strength, not your need, right? Jesus said, God blesses those who mourn. Timely for us. God blesses those who mourn. They'll be, they'll be comforted. Well, wait a minute. Kingdoms aren't supposed to be about mourning. They're supposed to be about celebration and strength and victory. Jesus' kingdom is different. God blesses those who are humble. Humble is not something the kingdoms of this world use. Promotion of yourself is really what the kingdoms of this world is built on. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know what this means? God blesses those who realize they can't get there on their own. They can't get there on their own. They, ju- they hunger and thirst for righteousness and for justice. These are marginalized people who have no way to get justice for themselves on this earth or the next. The kingdom is for them. The kingdom is for you. God blesses those who are merciful. Some people would say, well, mercy is for the weak. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. The kingdom of this world is built on a selfish heart, a self-centered heart, a heart that's turned in on itself. God blesses those who work for peace. The kingdoms of this world are often built on using power to get your way, using power to bully. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. It's the great reversal. But then the other place that we see the great reversal is in Jesus' birth, in his life, and in his death. You know this. Who was his birth announced to? Not a gathering of kings and rulers and influencers, but to shepherds. The coming of a king announced to shepherds. It's a different kingdom. It's a very different kingdom. You know, he was born in obscure, actually born under scandalous circumstances. His life, you know, obviously he's changed the whole world, but when he walked the earth, he, he, he was never rich. He was never really that famous. He never had that much influence. He, they all viewed him as just another prophet who would come and go. And, and would. But then what about his death? When we look at the cross, we see the great reversal. Tim Keller says it this way, On the cross, Jesus wins through losing. That's the reversal. He triumphs through defeat. He achieves power through becoming weak. And Jesus comes to wealth by giving everything he has away. It's the great reversal. The kingdom of God is an upside down one. The second thing we see is that it's not just the great reversal, but also it's the glorious renewal. Did you see that in verse 18? It said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's, brought, he's set the captives free. The blind will see. The oppressed will be free. Jesus is quoting Isaiah, but he just kind of drops in there this phrase that the blind will see. Now, the poor becoming wealthy or the weak becoming strong or the foolish being made wise, that's just a reversal. But the blind seeing is much more than a reversal. 
That's not something we can simply change through a reversal of values. And when Jesus said the blind will see both spiritual and physical, here's what he's saying. My kingdom is about the glorious renewal. When he came to start, inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, he set in motion the very things that were going to make everything new, that were going to give us hope beyond any grave, beyond any loss. This is more than a, simply reversal, a simple reversal of values. This is the promise of a miraculous renewal and recovery of every, listen to me, of every single thing that's been lost. He will renew it all. Well, what was lost? When we look at the Garden of Eden and the fall in Adam and Eve, there's three things that were very clearly lost immediately. The first was this, our relationship with God. They had a perfect, unhindered relationship with God before the fall. It was immediately lost. They hid in shame. They, they, what was their initial reaction? Awareness of their own nakedness. Trying to cover up their shame. Trying to hide from God. The relationship with God was lost. Well, in Jesus' kingdom, it's been restored. As we sang this morning, we've been brought back in. We've been given a citizenship in the kingdom of God through Jesus. The second thing we lost in the, king, in the garden was relationship with each other. Immediately, Adam and Eve became estranged from one another. They're, they blamed each other. Their relationship became difficult. And Next Sunday morning, you're going to hear about how the gospel affects not just me, but, but we, all of us. We've been brought in to a family, to a community. We're being built in. And in times like this is when we need the community, and we need one another, and we rely on one another, and we stand together. God's brought us together. Don't overlook his grace in our lives in that area. He did not just grace you by saving you to get you to heaven. He graced you by giving you a family. A family. This family right here in in this room this morning. And then the third thing that was lost was relationship with creation. You know, when Adam was placed in the garden, I think you might have heard about this a little bit last Sunday from my friend Dan McLaughlin. He was put there to care for it. Did you remember reading that? You can read that in Genesis 2. God didn't just throw Adam in the garden and say, have fun and do whatever you want. He said, till the land. Like, take care of it. Steward this. This is, we have this responsibility. It was our original mandate. But when the fall happened, part of the curse was, your work with the land now, it's going to be hard. It's going to be backbreaking. If anybody that's ever tried to do landscaping, you say amen. Like, you know, like... It's hard. It's terrible. How about those of you that had a shovel this week? I mean, it's, our relationship with creation is, is, is broken, and creation itself cries out for redemption. But even that, see, even that is going to be part of the glorious renewal. Whatever beautiful scene in nature captures your mind and your heart, it's just a shadow of what's to come. It's just the slightest hint of what awaits us when God makes it all new. One of my favorite pictures of Caroline is this picture. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? She's at the zoo in Syracuse, and just the perfect moment. The, the tiger had his paw, or her paw, up on the window, and somehow Caroline had the bravery to go over. And Aaron, I actually wasn't there this day. And uh, Aaron said, Caroline, put your, put your hand on the paw, and she did. I love that picture. I think the zoo would like to have that probably for promotion if they could. (laughs) When I look at this picture, you know what I think? Because we're in a kingdom where there's a promise 
of a glorious renewal. Someday, the glass will be gone. The glass will be gone. She'll, she'll do that in glory. Hand to paw. Because he's making it all new. It's going to end where it started. I mean, it won't be a garden, it'll be a city. But it's going to be the same And that we will walk with God. We will see God. We will know God. We will feel no shame. One of the things I text to one of my family members this week was, you know, when someone someone passes, everybody thinks about things they wish they'd said or done. I mean, it's just natural, right? It's normal. And let me just say this. when There's nothing to say now, right? I mean, those of you that feel like you have nothing to say to to us or to each other, uh, that's okay. I mean, you can say that. You can say, "I, I have no words. Sometimes that's better. Quite honestly, sometimes it's more helpful. Just the Jewish culture has a practice of grief called uh, sitting Shiva where they will just sit with each other without talking. It's the ministry of presence. And so if you're here tonight and you're coming through the line and you're racking your brain for the perfect thing to say because I've been there, it doesn't exist. We don't, no one needs answers or guesses or platitudes. We just, your presence, you know, your love. But when I, th- I think about this, that, oh, this is why I was saying it. I texted one of my family earlier this week, and I said, we're talking about things that maybe we regret or things we wish we had. You know, everybody thinks that way. And I said, you know, you realize that dad right now doesn't even know, doesn't even remember what it feels like to have a regret anymore. Doesn't even know. The, the pain that we feel right now, he can't even, he can't remember it. It's, it's. He's been made new. It's it's been taken from him. You know, there's a there's a there's a verse in Revelations at the end where it says, um, "Behold, I'm the one who sits on the throne." Says, "Behold, I'm making all things new." That's the glorious renewal. Well, the verse before, I might have said this recently in the series. I forget. He promises, "I will wipe every tear from your eye." Right? It's interesting. There's two different verb tenses there, though. Future tense, I will wipe every tear from your eye. Present progressive, I'm making all things new. I don't know if this is what the Apostle John meant, but this is what I think. That what it means is that sometimes in the midst of him making things new, there will still be tears in our eyes. But someday there won't. And you will be you without pain. And you will be you without shame. And you will be you without regret as my dad is this morning. So we have the great, or the good, or sorry, the great reversal, the glorious renewal. And then the last thing that I see in this text is that we have a good ruler, a good king. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. He said, the scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus was saying is what Isaiah was talking about, 
I'm it. What you've placed your hope in, I'm he. I'm different than you thought because it's a reversal. It's coming longer. It's going to come longer than you thought because it's a renewal. But I'm the good ruler and I'm here. We didn't just need another king or another ruler. We needed a good ruler. And when the people of Israel wanted a king, when they were fed up with Samuel and they said, we want a king, we want to be like all the other nations. Samuel, through God, warned him, hey, if you get a king, just want you to know what it means. He's going to require everything of you. Your sons, your daughters, your lives. You're going to die to serve him. To have him as your king. Jesus Christ is the one king who died to have us. He's the good king. He's the good ruler. It's interesting here is, the last thing I really want to say this morning is this. After Jesus read, he sat down. It might seem unusual to us. Why would he sit down? Well, in this culture, that's when you taught. You didn't do what we do. We stand up to teach most of the time. But he would stand to read, and then the rabbi would sit to begin the time of teaching and question and answering. And so when Jesus sat down, they all looked at him intently because they were waiting for him to teach from the text he just read. I wonder if he's going to have something interesting to say. I wonder if I've heard this before. I wonder if it's the same old, same old. And what came out of his mouth was nothing what they expected when he simply said, the scripture that you just heard has been fulfilled before you this very day. But he didn't just come to teach, of course. He came to live in our place. He came to die in our place. And what I love about this is that after Jesus went to the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, you know what he did? Once again, he sat down. He sat down. And now our eyes, just like them, are fixed intently, right? Still today, fixed intently on Jesus, not just to teach us, but to save us. We fix our eyes on him who sits at the right-hand side of the Father. And you know what he does now? He lives ever to pray for you and me. This week, he's been praying for us. He's been interceding for us before the Father. You may feel like you've not had people praying for you. Well, Jesus has been praying for you. He lives forever to make intercession for you. And I think the primary thing that he prays is what he told us to pray. Your will be done and your kingdom, your kingdom come. Let's pray.